What does it even mean? Your pursuit of gut health is probably taking you down a rabbit hole of misinformation, useless concoctions, and false promises. So this is where this uncensored podcast comes in. The gastroenterologist and his daughter is the first of its kind, bringing a specialist gastroenterologist and his daughter, yours truly, to help you navigate the world of all things gut health from mouth to bum and everything in between. Join me, Sandra McHale, gut health specialist dietitian and founder of Nutrition A to Z, and my father, Wagdi McHale, specialist gastroenterologist and internist, as we unpack the most talked about topics in gut health, covering both the medical and lifestyle aspects of all things gut, with a ton of comedy and fecal tete-a-tete. Right, let's get into it. Welcome back to the pod, everyone. I'm flying solo again with today's guest, but nevertheless, it was a fantastic episode that truly shed some light on that intersection between eating disorders and gut health. Lisa Waldron joins me today from Ireland, and she is a BDA-registered dietitian with a master's degree in dietetics and further specialist training in eating disorders. Lisa has worked in specialist eating disorder services for almost 10 years, where she has held the role of professional development officer for eating disorders for the British Dietetic Association and has contributed to national guidance on eating disorders. She's also developed recovery tools such as the Vegan Real, that's R-E-A-L, food pyramid. Lisa has experience in working with people across the full spectrum of eating disorders, including anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, as well as disordered eating. She uses her passion for food and fitness and expertise in behavior change to support people to develop a positive relationship with food and movement. Now, before we dive in, I want to take a moment to let you know that today's conversation about eating disorders can be a sensitive and potentially triggering topic for some listeners. If you feel that this topic might be triggering for you, we encourage you to skip this episode and join us for our next one. Your mental health is our priority. For those who choose to continue listening, I hope you find it informative and meaningful just like I did. Lisa, I am so happy to have you on today to chat about this intersection of gut health and eating disorders because this is something that I do see in my clinic. So thank you very much for making the time. No, I'm really delighted um, to have the invitation um, and to have the opportunity because it's something that is so prevalent. And I think, as you said, that kind of intersection between gut and and eating disorders, uh, we see it day in, day out. So getting the word out a little bit wider, I think is really important. And look, before we get into it, and as we do with all our guests, um, for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better, I'm going to ask you some questions. The first being, if you were a vegetable, what vegetable would you be and why? Okay. Um, can I cheat a little bit on this one? <laughs> go and for it. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to go for a starchy carbohydrate. I'm going to go with potato. <laughs> so it grows in the ground. So I'm going to, but it's, it's a little bit cheating. And aside from being Irish and that stereotype of, of potatoes and loving potatoes, I think it's more um, just it, it's adaptable, it's flexible, it can go in any meal, it makes any meal just that little bit uh, a little bit better. And I think in terms of my work and the way I try and live my life, it's really trying to be flexible, going with the flow. Um, and I think you need to have that. And I, I often try and teach that in eating disorder clinics. We do get some rigidity. So it's about that idea of of being really flexible and adaptable. So yeah, I think potato probably is a good match for me. 
I am all for potatoes in all their forms. I think the humble potato has been sort of, yeah, the, the, the underdog. So, all right. So now if you had to choose one food item, can't be a potato, but one food item to eat for the rest of your life, what would it be? I'm going to stick again with, with carbohydrates on this one. I love, I love a carb. Um, and I'm going to say bread because I feel you can, well, I love when I travel to try the local bread. I think you Same. learn so much from about a country's history and culture from the bread and how they make it. Yeah. So there's just so many different combinations and, and ways of eating it that I think I'd, I don't think it would be a hardship. I actually think I would find it quite an enjoyable thing to just have, have bread, bread for life. And then if I could have some some toppings, maybe if I could squeeze that out, it would be <laughs> ideal. But even without, I think I'd be I'd be pretty good. Uh, I'll give you the toppings. You can have the toppings. And um, what is one thing that people may not know about you? So I um, I'm into to cycling quite a lot. But actually, a couple of years ago, so just before COVID, I actually cycled through the the lowest point on earth. So I cycled from the Red Sea to the Dead Sea which is the most amazing experience. That's incredible. How long did it take you? So we did it across a week. It was a nice steady pace. It was not okay. anything where we, it wasn't a race. It wasn't anything uh, like that, but just more about the scenery and taking it all in. And I think it was the most amazing way to see a country was to do it cycling rather than being on a tour bus. You just got to stop and, and speak to people um, and just see everything, you know, um, at, at such a slower pace. That kind of slow travel was amazing. But just to, yeah, say you were able to cycle in the lowest point of Earth to me was something really incredible. That's incredible. I'm I'm fascinated. I that will be that's a great trip. Just like you said, a great way to see places. Because oh, I'm not sure I'll be able to do it from a stamina perspective. <laughs> but um, right. So getting into the topic of what we wanted to chat about today, what made you specialize in eating disorders? Um, so it's funny, actually, when I did my very first placement on, uh, in my course, uh, the first patient that I, I shadowed was actually an eating disorders patient. So I remember being really intrigued by um, the dietitian at the time having this conversation about the person struggling with food and they were in hospital. And actually, I think that just left a really big impression and imprint on me, just the way that she supported uh, that person. And kind of got to know um, them and the, and the barriers that they were experiencing and the fear of food and how that dietitian supported them and that felt much different to any consultations I I saw after that it felt much more kind of personalized and in depth and I just really mm. liked that that opportunity I guess to to spend time with the client and get to know them a little bit better. So then when I graduated, I did a, a role for a year and kind of a more general um, kind of building up my, my knowledge base um, across all of dietetics and nutrition. And then I saw an eating disorders role come up in the, in the north of England and I, I just went for it. I was like, really want to try it. I'll, I'll do it. And, and it was a maternity leave cover for a year. And I was like, I'll try it. See, see how it goes. You know, worst case, if it's really not for me. It's a year and we'll see what happens. And I've never left. I absolutely <laughs> loved it. You, you'd have to crowbar me out. I think part of it is just seeing, you know, people when they get the recovery, the freedom that they get. It's just they get their life absolutely. back. Um, and I love, you know, sometimes in our last appointment with a client, I'll be saying, you know, I hope I never see you again. But in a, in a nice way, you know, <laughs> that this is a parting, you know, that you go and, and live your life. And this was just something which was perhaps a period of time or 
you know, a bit of a journey you went through, but you don't necessarily think about that. It's just, you know, a blip that you had at this period of time. So I love that about uh, eating disorders is that you can get that full recovery for individuals. How long have you been working in this area now? So just under 10 years. So uh-huh. yeah, so it's been... Um, it's going to be hard to get you out. <laughs> I know, I know. And I've done, I've changed in that time. I've kind of done inpatient, I've done community, I've done private work. And I'm, I'm back into working for the, the public health service now in, in Ireland. So different experiences, but yeah, really love working with the MDT and then um, the different clients as well. I really enjoy. So talking about, you know, or just giving us an idea about the different types of clients that you see and perhaps for some of our listeners who are not familiar with the different forms of eating disorders, could you kind of give us a quick rundown of the type of, let's say, clients or patients I always call them clients now that I'm no longer working, you know, working in hospitals. So just give us a rundown of what sort of clients you see. Sure. So I see quite a few with restrictive eating disorders and that's often anorexia nervosa. So although anorexia nervosa is actually the least common eating disorder, I think people are more familiar with it because it, it gets the most attention in the media. And people are more likely to recognize it and I think possibly seek help for it because there's that greater level of awareness for it. But it's really important to consider that actually only about 6% of people with an eating disorders are medically diagnosed as as underweight. So there's a huge cohort of people who who don't fit this kind of stereotype of um, kind of low weight or emaciated. And there's far more people who are experiencing eating disorders, you know, in our communities and around us people likely in our in our close circles that we're, we're not necessarily, there's no visual kind of image of what someone with an eating disorder might, might look like. And then I also see quite a few people with bulimia nervosa. So mm. that's people with bulimia um, will typically be more of a, they, they don't tend to be falling in the underweight category, but what will often happen is there will be some restriction there. Um, but they they will binge and then try and compensate for that binge in some way, which may be vomiting. It might be using things like laxatives or other means, which can be quite um, harmful to their health. So we do see quite a few people um, with bulimia come to clinic. Um, and then we also see people um, who experience binge eating. And often they will come to clinic in real distress with the, the binges that they're experiencing but also wanting to lose weight at the same time. So that tends to be how people um, are presenting and coming to us. And initially that work is kind of focused on asking people to park that idea of weight loss. Because really what you're trying to do is if you're trying to stop binging, you know, and you're trying to seek weight loss, which requires some dietary restriction, you're pulling in opposite directions. So we find that doesn't really work. So there, you know, three of the kind of, clients that we we tend to see but actually then in between there's lots of people who you know don't maybe fit those those categories and actually the majority of people don't fit nicely into those kind of distinct um boxes and will have levels of distress you know around their eating and maybe restriction restricting maybe binging um and might not meet what we call the diagnostic criteria but what i would say is if you're experiencing distress around your eating you know, that is reason enough to seek um, help and support. You don't need to tick the box for having, you know, all of the, all of the different characteristics in order to need and, and you know, uh, deserve support. 
I completely agree. And this is something that I've called clients who've presented to us. I was like, we, I mean, yes, we do. Because we do work in a multidisciplinary team. So a lot of times I would refer them out if they don't seek help with, let's say, a specific type of therapist, whether it's psychologist, a psychiatrist. But I don't need, you don't need a label per se. You don't need to fit a label to feel deserving of seeking help from a dietitian. And this is something that I always highlight. The other thing that I wanted to ask you is, do you see a rise in orthorexia? And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I've, again, working with therapists as well as just this orthorexia and this intersection with seeking you know, perfect gut health is something that I've seen at clinic. Yeah, there's definitely a, a drive towards this kind of perfect diet and this fear yeah. of, particularly now there's, there's lots of information around ultra processed foods and a lot of fear um, kind of mongering around um, these foods. So people are coming, you know, with extremely restrictive diets, which are causing far more harm than any ultra processed food would, would do. So we definitely see um, a rise in orthorexia, but where it becomes tricky is that some of these kind of diets are really socially acceptable. So people are going, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just eating clean. You know, they even have the, and and those terms and people can chat about it in the office. I hate that term. (laughs) Nobody even raises an eyebrow. They just go, oh, they're just eating clean. They're just detoxing. You know, and these are disordered eating behaviors, which people are kind of encouraging without recognizing that actually, you know, these are not normal eating patterns for for people. And if... I mean, now that I mentioned gut health, right? So, and I, and I wanted our listeners and myself as well to sort of understand this whole gut health, area of gut health in the context of eating disorder recovery. So my first question to you is, what is the significance of gut health in the recovery journey of someone with an eating disorder? So, yeah, it actually is. It's a really significant uh, factor, you know, in, in dietetics when we're working with people with eating disorders. So we know, you know, so we have good evidence that we need a balanced and diverse gut uh, bacteria um, and that that's associated with improved mood, cognition and overall mental health and well-being. And then actually, and, you know, the lack of diversity in an imbalanced gut microbiome is associated with anxiety, depression and can really hinder somebody's progress in, in the recovery journey. But we have also some studies that showed that over 80% of people with a, an eating disorder have at least one functional gut disorder. Yep. So what we'll often find is people presenting to services and, and potentially like yourself coming with, you know, saying I have IBS or I need to look at doing a low FODMAP diet. And what's actually driving that, what the underlying factor is malnutrition or some disordered eating behaviors. Yep. And they're wanting to maybe, you know, identify or pin it on a food or they're thinking, oh, it's because, you know, I cut out gluten, I cut out lactose. But actually the fact that they're extremely malnourished and underweight is what's driving some of these functional gut disorders. So there's a huge overlap in, in you know, both of our work and, and we would often get referrals from gastroenterology teams. Um, you know, following investigations, they've actually discovered that, you know, it, this is driven by eating disorders. Absolutely. Look, I I do see that and I continue to see that a lot and a lot of, and just like you said, you know, what is, what is driving the gut problems? And in that specific realm, it is a malnutrition, it is a restrictive eating. If you had to look at maybe specific, you know, to, to walk through an example of how eating disorders impact gut health and vice versa, 
How would you explain that? Or how can you walk us through, you know, whether it's giving examples of, you know, how, you know, what are the most common gut issues that you would see in people presenting with a different eating disorders? Yeah. So I suppose one of them um, with restrictive eating disorders, people will will often experience bloating, um, constipation, abdominal pain. Um, a lot of that is due to the the malnutrition. So our body is really good at trying to maintain homeostasis, so trying to keep a, a balance and trying to keep things on yeah. an even keel. So what happens is if somebody reduces their intake significantly and they're restricting, the body tries to extract as much energy and nutrients from the food it gets as possible. So in order to do that, it will actually slow, you know, the the transit time of food. So it will spend longer in your your GI tract. And in doing that, you know, you get early satiety, so you can feel full more quickly, um, but you also get um, some bloating and often, you know, constipation because food is, is not moving through the gut in the same way it would have done previously. So also we, we get lots of people who aren't even eating enough to produce a stool. So that in and of itself causes, causes constipation. So again, somebody could perhaps present to your clinic saying, oh, you know, I've got constipation. So that's why it's so important for people to start, you know, to make sure they're, they're digging a little bit deeper and, you know, checking off that actually is this person eating enough and are they eating regularly yeah. and, and is there, you know, restriction here that, that shouldn't be here. So in anorexia, you know, constipation and bloating is, is really common. If we... We see people then who are maybe purging, so people with bulimia or if they've got, you know, if they're using vomiting in any other eating disorder, will often find that they will have quite bad dyspepsia. So they'll have acid reflux yeah. and that can be quite debilitating. You know, people can find that it's really uncomfortable um, and painful and they can get quite a lot of regurgitation just because of the regularity of that acid passing up the, the esophagus. And it can cause quite a bit of damage so people can get esophagitis as well, where they get inflammation and irritation of, of the esophagus because of the, the vomiting. Um, and that's the acid, you know, causing damage um, as it comes up. And then with our, our clients who, who binge eat, we'll often get people experiencing nausea um, and they may have fluctuating bowels. So it might go from constipation to diarrhea but it, they often will have a really irregular bowel habit, um, but can get quite a lot of pain and bloating as well after after binges. So the picture can can vary for, for people. Yeah. It does also vary across the recovery journey as well. So some people will will find that their symptoms actually change as they restore weight um, or as they introduce new foods into the diet as well. The other thing that I maybe wanted to ask you if you do see, because this, this is another sort of, I don't even know what to call it, but like we do get a lot of self-reported food intolerances with a lot of our eating disorder clients as well. How do you navigate that topic? So yeah, that is, it's a, it's a tricky one and it has to be yeah. done really, really delicately. And, and with, you yeah. know, kind of, I suppose, gentle curiosity, you know, we do get people particularly with restrictive eating disorders get secondary lactose intolerance due to malnutrition. So actually they get that lactase deficiency just because they've, they've restricted for so long. But often when we're working on the reintroduction of, of lactose for those individuals, we're looking at, for example, dairy products that have lower levels. So we'd be looking at your hard cheeses, we'd be looking at things like ice cream, you know, because actually the, the lactose levels in those are, are reasonably low, you know, in comparison to having a, a glass of milk okay. and things like that. So 
we do things quite gently and we do things, you know, we, we kind of test it out with people. And we, a lot of it would be around that education. So, you know, asking people, have they undergone tests and where they've got the test from? Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a very limited range of, of um, evidence-based tests for any exactly. uh, food intolerances. You know, we will find lots of people coming in saying they're gluten intolerant or, you know, or, and things like that. But actually, a lot of their the food that they've maybe restricted or omitted is because they felt it's given them symptoms. But actually, part of that is educating that the restriction itself has driven exactly. the symptoms. Yep. So if we can get people adequately nourished, then we can start to reintroduce those foods um, and do it in a way that's kind of controlled and, and safe for that individual. And we also find, I don't know if you find this in clinic as well, but the nocebo effect mm. where, you know, people are so caught up in the in the anxiety around that this exactly. food is going to give me a symptom. Exactly. Even if they're challenged with a food that doesn't contain it, it yeah. they, you know, the, the power of that gut brain axis will produce a symptom um, despite it not even containing that food stuff. So you telling somebody this has gluten in it, they eat it, they get a response, even though it may not have gluten in it because yeah. the anxiety has, has been that high for that individual. And I'm um, speaking of anxiety and I think when you've gotten to that point where they're ready to make these changes and also, you know, addressing their gut health as well. So what sort of dietary changes can you, you know, that, that you would suggest supports gut health without triggering the anxiety of or any sort of obsessive behaviors when they're going through recovery? So I think what I try and focus on is kind of getting the, the building blocks of fundamentals sorted first. So rather than focusing on kind of any individual foodstuffs in the first instance, I'm really thinking about getting a regular eating pattern in place because we'll often see people with large periods of time in the day where they're not eating. They might be fasting for large periods of the day and, and then eating, you know, one large meal or or even just a small meal late in the evening. So large kind of gaps in, in their eating. Mm-hmm. And that in itself can lead to gut symptoms for that individual. So it's really trying to get that regularity of eating. And then the next step is once we get the regular three meals, three snacks, kind of no longer than three hours um, between between eating, we're then ensuring that the adequacy is there, that they're getting enough in. And that's to, you know, ensure that we're adequately nourishing the body, getting what we need, and that will help improve the, the gut transit time, that will help, you know, manage some of the, the constipation and the other symptoms because they're getting enough to produce a stool. So those kind of building blocks will really start to to get the baseline. You know, if you're starting introducing probiotics and prebiotics before you've got adequacy, there's there's no point. You're not going to, you know, you're putting a Band-Aid over a a septic wound at that point. It's not doing what it needs to do. We need to have those in place. And then once we've got the regular eating, we've got the adequacy, that's when we can start to play around with the variety. Um, We often find in eating disorders that people have quite a limited range of safe foods that they're, they're kind of and that helps to manage anxiety for that individual in, in that moment in time. So what we want to do is try and nudge them to expand that out. So, you know, maybe expanding the the types of fruits and vegetables that they have. Often people will avoid the potatoes is a big one. That, exactly. is a food that's All your starchy vegetables, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So it's, you know, what we know about diverse and um, balanced gut microbiome 
is that we need to give it lots of variety. Um, and that's what really helps it to, to feed that gut bacteria. So we try and expand those range of foods that they're actually having. And that'll promote that gut biodiversity. So again, having all of those in place are those kind of fundamental building blocks. And then after that, I do, well, and probably throughout is about trying to manage stress and anxiety. So anxiety plays such a role in, in, in people experiencing gut symptoms and eating disorders and anxiety go hand in hand. So people yeah. get really anxious about the foods that they're eating. So we really try and come up with strategies to support the person to manage their anxiety. So it might be planning the foods in advance, you know, in, at least in the initial stages until people have tried, tried them and become more comfortable, but also having things like distraction techniques at mealtimes. So that could be listening to the radio or your favorite music while there's a meal on or ensuring, you know, if you're having dinner with family and that's a time where that could be quite anxious, it's maybe asking family to talk about non-food related topics, you know, so talking about how your day was or the weather or whatever it is, and just not chatting about food or, you know, having some kind of no-go areas when you're, you're sitting and eating. And those things can kind of try and help and, and manage that anxiety for that, that person. Because really, people with eating disorders are, are often in that kind of fight or flight mode for large periods of the day and we really want to activate that parasympathetic nervous system that rest and digest we you know so we do work on strategies around trying to get people you know that might be using breathing techniques that might be using things like yoga you know and and other methods to try and get them into that space because we know you know that that helps with the, the the gut and trying to manage some of those gut symptoms as well i mean if I have to reflect on my practice, generally, especially when we're working on food exposure and you know exposing them to their fear foods, and then when the topic of diversity comes in, this is where we actually work closely with the whole team. So with the therapists that they're aware, we're going to start that so that they can also just kind of chime in. And I think this is the importance of having the right support system around you. And then the other thing is just the power of education and the power of giving them all the tools and techniques to tap into that toolbox as they're trying to you know, navigate this recovery time because it is, you know, weight restoration comes with its own set of, of even just gut symptoms as well. My my question to you is, maybe this is a little off topic, but this is something that I do in practice. Do you, I always say the only detox I would support during this time is, or well, all the time, is a social media detox. So we do recommend our clients to get off all socials purely because of trying to navigate all the misinformation because a lot of the things that we might be saying can be completely contradicting to what they're reading or they're being exposed to so how do you how do you communicate that yeah um it's it's definitely a, a, a really important um thing to discuss in in the work that we do because people are getting these mixed messages you know and sometimes people follow recovery accounts and things which can be be helpful I suppose part of what I would chat about with the individual is about how they feel, you know, after coming off social media, you know, are they feeling positive? Are they feeling enriched? Are they feeling nourished after that? Or are they coming off that feeling this kind of comparison or confusion or, you know, more anxious? And actually, you know, 
I, I talk to people a bit like if you touch a hot pan and you and you you get burnt, you don't go and put your hand back on the pan and leave it there. But when we go back into social media and it makes us feel bad and we go back in and we go back in, we go back in, we're touching that hot pan that, you know, and, and we're we're kind of causing harm to ourselves all of all of the time. So it is it's a really important thing to try and and pull back from that and give that education around let's just step out from now. You know, if, if it's not adding to your life, let's let's step out and, and let's just really focus on on you um, and your needs and your journey. Because, you know, comparison is really, really unhelpful. Everybody's journey is, is completely different. You know, the pace of, of people's moving through recovery can change as well. It's not, it's not this lovely linear, you know, each day will be better than the, the one before. It will be up and down. You know, people describe it as a roller coaster. But we're looking at the direction of travel rather than the speed. So we're looking that over time, you know, things are improving and you, you're, you know, you may be eating more and more variety. But it's not that every day is better than the day before. And it's just being kind and compassionate to yourself and not trying to, you know, keep pace with anybody else's journey. And I think social media does pull us into that, whether we, we think with the best intentions in the world and we're going, I'm not comparing, I'm not, you know. You find yourself getting sucked in and, and that's what it's designed to do. It's very good at it. So you yeah. do have to kind of step away from from that. So I, I would definitely, we, we do the same in our clinics as well around trying to get people to have a, a detox or full removal. But then when they do go back into it, some people use it for work and it can be something that they need yeah. to do. But, you know, really managing that time um, on, and managing their feed. You know, you can cur- curate. Curate, exactly your own feed. So it's picking things that that nourish you and that you get something uh, back from, I think. Uh, look, I completely agree with everything that you've said. And you know, the algorithm, you can all, you, you dictate the algorithm, you dictate what you see. So even if you do choose to go back onto social media, we do have sort of ways in, you know, being strategic with it, bucketing your time. If we had to look at maybe specific nutrients, and then this is sort of a little disclaimer but that, I, that I tell my clients is, Food works in synergy. You cannot just pick one miracle food that's going to work for your gut. But if you had to look at, you know, the sort of, you know, education or like nutrients when it comes to how they play a crucial in restoring gut health throughout recovery, are there any specific things that come to mind? Well, I suppose the the kind of baseline that we try and do is make sure that people aren't experiencing nutrient deficiencies because that's really common in eating disorders. With with yeah. restriction, you'll be missing out on, on some nutrients of of some description. And typically the ones that I see in clinic most commonly are vitamin D. So people, you know, aren't aren't get, it's very difficult to get from the diet anyway, but people aren't necessarily supplementing. So we're trying to get people to supplement with uh, with vitamin D because we know that there's some association with immune and, and gut health with, with vitamin D. And then I also routinely would recommend omega-3 supplementation uh, for people who don't uh, consume oily fish regularly. And part of that is because um, omega-3s and particularly your EPA, they've been associated with the regulation of mood and emotions. And then also, you know, through the gut-brain axis, anywhere where we can promote stability of mood is going to hopefully have positive yeah. impacts on, on our gut health as well. So as I said, it's not a case of, well, this is just going to sort out my, my mm-hmm. gut health and, and, and fix it. Um, but these are things which, 
if we've got in, in play, we've got the building blocks and it's all about, you know, adding and making sure we've got all those basics kind of in place before thinking, oh, if I add in this this fermented kimchi, this is going to sort it out. You know, if, you, if exactly. you're deficient in iron or you're deficient in vitamin D, yeah. all of that is, isn't going to make, you know, they're the, the lovely kind of cherry on top, you know, the, the prebiotics, those kind of things, but we need to have the kind of all of the nutrients and, and baseline stuff in, in play first. And I think one thing um, that's useful to just share about as well is that fiber typically isn't the problem in, in eating disorders. Often we find people are eating far more fiber. Too, too much. much. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the, the thing is there is that in malnutrition, fiber doesn't actually have a positive impact on constipation. It's about getting enough food in first and, yeah. and getting, you know, repairing that malnourished state. So, you know, we're often looking at decreasing soluble fiber, um, you know, in, in eating disorders. The one type of fiber that we do bring in, though, is sometimes we will suggest uh, bringing in linseeds. So there's, you know, in, in practice, uh, we, we often will use linseeds as a way to help with, with some of the gut symptoms that people are experiencing. And there isn't at the moment kind of any robust evidence in eating disorders for probiotics. But they are quite, you know, they're reasonably well researched in IBS and the symptoms do map, you know, quite closely to a lot of eating disorder um, symptoms. So really, if people want to try them, we don't stop them because they, they tend to be a low risk uh, trial. So there's kind of no, you know, they're, they're safe and effective in IBS. So there's a reasonable basis for giving them a go is what I would say. But I wouldn't ever, you know, directly prescribe them for, for anybody. So Similar to IBS, you'd be suggesting someone does want to try them, that they do it for a four-week period, see how it goes. <laughs> but again, they need to be working on getting adequacy in the, in the background. That needs to be the main focus. So these are extras, but you need that kind of underlying adequacy going on. No, I, look, I completely agree with you. And it's just, you're working on the foundations first. And I think this is something that, again, a big part of my role is sort of, you know, educating or let's say re-educating because a lot of my clients know more about nutrition than I do sometimes. But it's really about, you know, just like I said, correcting any nutritional deficiencies. And just like you said, I try to really focus, and this is how I present it, like focusing on nutrients that are really important for mental health or brain health, starting off with your omega-3 fats, starting off with, you know, your B vitamins, which are your energy vitamins, but also your mental health vitamins. And yes, because fiber is, again, so glorified. And we do talk about fiber, but I always say you need to find that sweet spot because the clients that I see in this field, they're getting way too much or way too much of a specific fiber that's filling them up for a longer period of time with no little wiggle room for us to even include things that that are required for nourishment. So I'm, I'm very happy you mentioned that as well. Are there any misconceptions when it comes to gut health and its relationship with eating disorders? I think, you know, in terms of some of the misconceptions that we see, that gut health is only relevant for gastro symptoms. I think that's one misconception that we're only thinking about gut health in relation to bloating and abdominal pain and, and other things. But actually, you know, that gut brain access is is so vital and we know that the you know in terms of regulation of mood and mood stability anxiety and depression that gut health is far more important than just experiencing constipation so we need to try and you know promote a, a diverse 
microbiome. And that is through eating enough. And then when we get the variety and then, you know, we build on that, we can look at, you know, specific probiotics, we can look at prebiotics and all of the other bits and pieces. But we're not just looking at it to solve the the symptoms that people are experiencing. It's about overall health and well-being. So it's not just related to to those gut symptoms. Um, I think the other misconception is is what we just mentioned as well is that fiber, more fiber, fiber yeah. is gonna exactly. it's gonna be good for everybody. And I think that's why coming to dietitians is so important and not getting your information necessarily off social media because you know you need to do that assessment to understand you know going through and and seeing person's intake soluble and insoluble fiber and if it's adequate or if it's excessive and giving individualized you know advice on that and, and education on that so that's why you know having people in the field like yourself and being able to you know produce stuff on social media and your book and all of that information and knowing that the information out there is evidence-based and that it's accurate is so important because it's it's diluting some of the what I'll call the nutritional nonsense that's out there. And I think that's so, so important. It's just it's just funny because, you know, speaking about social media, especially specifically when it comes to fiber, one of the comments that I would get, but I thought fiber was healthy for us. We need to eat more and more and more. And this is why I actually refrain from using the term healthy. I just feel and I continue to feel like it's been hijacked, you know, by this, I call them the wellness unicorn society on social media, because at the end of the day, what healthy is for me is very different to what healthy is for you. And it it is never static as well. So perhaps right now too much fiber is actually not healthy for this current chapter in your life or for whatever you're going through at this point in time. So yeah, you mentioned social media and, and this whole, as I said, this term healthy is just something that I've actually actively told all my clients that you will never hear me use that term. I do not like labeling the way we eat, what's healthy, what's unhealthy, none of that. Because food labels are a very big thing, especially when it comes to eating disorders. Yeah, it's huge. And I think what's really interesting and something I found really funny when I got into eating disorders is, you know, uh, I remember you know, almost prescribing someone to have a chocolate bar, you know, as part of their meal plan and going, no, I need you to have chocolate and going, I never thought as a dietitian I'd be, you know, encouraging people to eat more. But actually, you know, a huge part of the work that we do in eating disorders is about trying to support that relationship with food. And food is about so much more than energy in and and nutrients. It's about enjoyment. You know, we're coming up to you know, the the holidays and for lots of people, it's about coming together. It's about celebrating your culture and traditions and time together and, you know, having birthday cake with your your family to celebrate a birthday or having an ice cream at the beach at seaside are really important things to be able to nourish your soul. And, you know, so that's where I think orthorexia and those types of things can be quite dangerous because they remove a lot of the, you know, the the foods and, and they demonize foods, which are part of our you know, our wider health and well-being. As I said, it's not just about what gives me this vitamin or it gives me that nutrient. It's what else it kind of nourishes us with and what it gives us. And I think, you know, getting people to tackle fear foods and introduce them back into the diet, that's when you get that kind of fuller recovery. And speaking of fears, one of the other big fears that we get is the concerns about weight gain during the recovery process. So how do you address that? 
Yeah, so that weight and and um, it's funny because you talk about language and not wanting to use healthy. And in in my clinics with with clients, I will always talk about weight restoration, um, rather than weight gain, because actually what we're trying to do is restore somebody to that kind of optimal functioning. Yeah. Um, and in their own mind, they're thinking of gain as something else, but actually restoration is about just bringing you back to the status quo and where you need to be at. So we'll do a lot of kind of education around this is what we're trying to do when, when we restore your, your weight. And then there's a lot of education as well around what weight change actually means because people think that weight equates to fat. So they have this image in their head that if, if, my, if I've stepped on the scales and it's gone up by a kilo, they're imagining this you know, white, sticky substance that is a, a kilo of fat. But actually, that kilo of, of change in weight can be related to muscle. It can be fluid. It can be you know, the density of your bones increasing. And those things are really important, you know, in our bodies. And those shifts are really important. So actually, you know, encouraging people to restore that weight and understand that in that restoration, what you're actually getting, you're getting better sleep, you're getting better energy, you're getting reduced gut symptoms. All of those things are part and parcel of of restoration. And I think, you know, you can't live a, a, a full life on a restricted diet. You know, I talk about when people try to shrink their bodies, their world shrinks. So, you know, they can't accept the offer to go out for a meal with friends. You know, they can't just go in and they're, they're worried about going on holiday because what that means. So that their whole world actually shrinks, you know, in order to change that number on the scales. And it, it, it's really, you know, it's really sad when you, you see it, but actually when you see somebody come out the other side and get that recovery, it's the most incredible thing to, to say, you know, to, to see somebody get the opportunities and, and that anxiety reducing that person is, is just, it's lovely to see. And it's, I think it's what keeps, it keeps, keeps us working. Yeah, it keeps yeah. us doing what we do because, you know, you're almost feeling like you're giving back somebody that opportunity for enjoyment. You know, people instead of dreading, you know, Christmas or or other events like that actually can look forward to it and plan and get involved and enjoy it without the weight of the fear of, of food, um, you know, taking away from that experience. And I like, and this is, I mean, I, I did mention this whole term weight restoration. And one thing I tell my clients is we're looking at other KPIs. So what are the KPIs that are going to come under that cloud is just like you mentioned, how am I feeling? How are my energy levels? How am I sleeping? How's my poo? A lot of the times they do notice that their gut symptoms are actually moving in the right direction. They're having bowel movement regularity. It's softer than before. It's not pebble-like poo. So there's a lot of all these other KPIs that, you know, helps us take the focus off the weight per se. Do you, you know, especially during this recovery period, um, do you encourage your clients to sort of celebrate these small victories that they take throughout recovery that is not food related? <laughs> yeah. So often, you know, I do try and get people to uh, like journal quite a lot as well to keep track because sometimes people don't realize, uh, you know, when they're working on something day to day, they don't necessarily notice the changes that are happening. So we will yeah. check in with them. But yeah, kind of marking these milestones of something like, you know, going to the, the beach and having an ice cream with their, their toddler, you know, and getting a picture and putting that up on the fridge and going, this is why I'm doing it. You know, for those times when it gets really hard and you're sitting down and challenging a fear food and you're going, why am I doing this? It'd be so much easier just to skip this meal or skip this extra yeah. snack. 
and you look up and you go, that's why. So I can do that and I can enjoy that and look forward to that. And that's what life can look like. So definitely that kind of celebrating success and using that to kind of continue the, to motivate when when times are you know difficult because recovery is is a journey it, it's up and down um, exactly. and it's at highs and lows so you, you need those drivers when when you're having those tough days look by the time this episode comes out i think it's going to be Christ, christmas day probably but going into this whole january you know like the bombardment of all the messages that we'll be getting how do you help people navigate this time of year well i think you know what you you mentioned earlier about that social media detox you know I think is, is is a really good opportunity in the new year to have a clear out, you know, yeah. unsubscribe from the newsletters and the other things, and, you know, some of the podcasts are bombarded with information, you know, and it becomes overwhelming and we don't, we can't see the wood from the trees. You know, I, I will often speak to clients and they're, they're worried about, you know, this, the, the phytochemicals in their yeah. foods and actually it's yeah, stopping yeah. the absorption. And I'm going, well, actually, you're just not eating enough food. We, we don't need to worry about that. We've not got mm-hmm. the basics right yet. So I think, yeah, stepping back from, from the, the January, you know, kind of social media side, but also I think having some kind of pre-prepared like lines for when the inevitable diet chat happens in the office in the new year or wherever you're working. It, it's almost unavoidable. You know, I, I'm often chatting to to clients about, they're just saying it's everywhere. You know, people are at the water cooler, they're in the coffee shop and they're hearing people talking about, oh, you know, I'm on this diet or I'm doing this for the new year. And it's actually having, you know, just a, a short, not not defensive, but maybe a one-liner of, you know, oh, I, you know, my New Year's resolution is not to talk about weight this year, you know, or something like that to just step back from that conversation and go, you know, I don't find conversations about what weight enjoyable. So I'm just going to step out, you know, and that just allows you to not get sucked in uh, to some of those unhelpful conversations. No, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with all, all these tips. And look, I can sit here for another hour trying to pick your brains and going through you know, all the brilliant work that you do with your clients, but for time reasons and time constraints, um, before we close off, I would love for you to share your three personal, if you do have any personal gut health habits that you'd like to share, again, keeping in mind that everything's individualized, right? What, what, you know, what works for you may not work for me. So our gut health habits are very different, but what would be yours? Yeah, well, I'll give three, which I think are probably pretty universal, I would hope. I think so anyway, <laughs> or you can take from them what, what you need. I think my my big one is thinking about adding, not taking away. And that probably comes from the work that I do in eating disorders. It's about looking at a meal and going, you know, what can I add to this? So I will often have like a little mixed kind of clear plastic container of, of seeds, which is just on the shelf you know, and one of nuts and it'll just have a, a mix and, you know, I'll make up my own kind of mixed bag of, of seeds and nuts that I can just put on salads that I can just put on porridge in the morning. Um, you know, oh, what fruit can I add to to this dish? You know, my friends laugh at me that I, I love a fruit in a, in a salad and they're going like, you know, why are there peaches in your salad? And I'm like, well, why not? It's, you know, something, try something new. I'm thinking about what I can add all the time. And that's really, you know, coming down to variety in your your gut microbiome. So I'm just, you know, and it even comes down to 
each time I go to the supermarket, it's choosing a different type of apple. You know, so rather I might get a Granny Smith one week and the next I'll go for a Pink Lady. And it's just about trying to feed the gut bacteria different foods all the time. And that feeds into the flexibility as well, um, which we're always trying to aim for in, in eating disorders. I think the next one for me um, would be sleep. So I'm a firm believer that sleep is kind of one of the, the, those those building blocks. You cannot, you know make the best decisions, uh, you know, make the best choices mm. if you're sleep deprived. Um, so it's not just a good habit. I think it's an overall health and well-being habit. But if you're, if you're tired, everything else is more difficult. So everything else we want to do to improve our health, whether it's movement, everything else, it's just harder to do if you're, if you're tired. So if you can prioritize sleep, not always possible for people who have little ones, but as best you can, you know, it's using that opportunity to, um, you know, have regular bedtimes and, and try and get sleep. And then finally, I think, and I'm hoping it's another universal one, is spending time in nature. So mm. I love being outdoors. Um, we know it has positive effects on stress, you know, depression, anxiety, and, you know, the bi-directional nature of the, the gut-brain axis means that improving your mental health is likely to support a healthier gut as well. So it's more of these, rather than being gut specific, I think these three are all about, you know, the building blocks for health and they will, by their very nature, help, you know, create the environment for a healthy gut as well. I completely agree with all all the above, you know, a thousand times over. And just like you said, I mean, it's not just for for gut health, especially when we're talking about, you know, at the end of the day, inclusion, it's about inclusion, not exclusion when it comes to food, whether it's for eating disorders, whether it's for gut health. And the other thing that I always highlight to my clients is with all these healthy habits, you know, we're one solid unit. We're not separate compartments at the end of the day. So whether you're eating for brain health or heart health or gut health, you're eating to support your body and all the systems together at the same time. And funny enough, you know, your, your third habit of spending time in nature, I actually tried forest bathing for the very first time. And it was phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's, it's a form of meditation and just taking everything in. And it was incredible. It was bloody cold because <laughs> we were in the <laughs> mountains. Um, and it was raining, but it was an incredible experience. And I think that was my biggest nudge to really spend more time in nature because I've been vocal about my own mental health struggles too. And just that profound effect. You don't have to be out there for hours. It's just going to a park, you know, just sitting there on a bench and literally taking everything in, listening to the chirping of the birds. That 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 is, you know, it has a you know medicinal effect, whatever you want to call it. But we we do underestimate the power of nature. So I'm definitely with you there, Lisa. Where can our listeners find you? So I am on Instagram at uh, Lisa Waldron Dietitian, and um, I'm also on X um, at Lisa Waldron 19. So you can find me on, on either of those where I'll post uh, information on eating disorders and there, there is gut health stuff on there as well at times. Fantastic. I'm going to make sure we're going to pop that in the show notes. But again, thank you very much for today. And thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Gastroenterologist and His Daughter podcast. Don't forget to join us again. And if you've been enjoying our chats, make sure you subscribe, follow, or leave a review on your chosen platform.